Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. And uh, we've spent the last couple of weeks uh, talking about current events. I, I suspect that uh, because current events are, are becoming very uh, relevant in many ways in our lives, and, and particularly constitutionally, um, any thoughts on developments in the last week regarding the uh, presidential in- impeachment? Quite a few thoughts, actually, although there's not a whole lot of new developments taking place. We, within the last week, we have now learned that they are going to start the impeachment trial in the Senate on Tuesday, that is Tuesday the 9th of February, and some are saying this will last a few hours, others are saying it will last a few days. They're threatening that unless they can reach some agreement, it could be stretched out over a number of weeks. That seems unlikely, however, but... Some have said that since the House, when they decided to initiate the impeachment, they had no witnesses, they had no attorney for the president at the time, and they just rushed this through in a matter of hours as kind of a, what I would call a, somewhere between a kangaroo court and a lynch mob. But, so several on the Republican side have said that since that is the case, since you didn't even bring any witnesses in your House proceeding, we're not going to allow you to bring any witnesses when you bring the matter to the Senate. And we're going to dispose of this on a matter of jurisdiction and should be able to do so in a few hours. And 45 Republican senators have taken the position that the Senate has no jurisdiction to try this impeachment because the president is no longer president. He's now an ex-president and that That being the case, the whole purpose of an impeachment proceeding, which was to remove someone from office when that person was intolerable, and so we couldn't wait until the next election to remove that person. But anyway, so the whole purpose was for that removal, and since he's no longer in office, we are taking the position that, therefore, the Senate has no jurisdiction to proceed further on this. Now, there was one case... Well, let's talk about two cases, actually. There's one from back in 1797. It involved a United States senator, and anyway, they brought impeachment proceedings against the senator. The House impeached him, but before it went to the Senate for a impeachment trial, before that, he was expelled from the Senate under another proceeding. And so the Senate took the position that Therefore, there is no jurisdiction. He's no longer in the Senate. We have no jurisdiction to proceed further with a trial. And I think that's probably quite important simply because, as I say, the year was 1797. That's only eight years after the Constitution was ratified. And so I would suspect that the senators who reached that decision probably had a pretty good understanding of what the intent of the framers was. I'd have to do some checking on this, but my guess is that some of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were serving in the Senate themselves at this time, or at least were readily available. And they could certainly have consulted the sitting president of the time, George Washington, who himself was president of the Constitutional Convention. 
Anyway, then we have one other proceeding, though, and that is in 1876, and this involves a Secretary of War. The House decided to impeach the Secretary of War, but a couple of hours before they were ready to vote on an impeachment, the Secretary resigned, and the House simply said that this is obviously just a tactic to evade impeachment, and so they went ahead and impeached him anyway. The matter then went to the Senate to decide whether to try him, and on a pretty close vote, but not a two-thirds vote, they decided that they did have jurisdiction to proceed with the trial. However, when it came for a vote on whether to convict him, they were short of the two-thirds necessary to convict, and so it didn't go any further. But whether they even had the authority to try him, that's open to a question, because as I say, the two cases that I've talked about, 1797 and 1876, those are only examples of what the Senate has done. That doesn't mean it's what they should have done. And none of these, neither of these, were ever referred to the Supreme Court. And so we don't have any court precedent deciding this question. If in the extremely unlikely event that two-thirds of the Senate were to vote to convict and then were to go a step further beyond that and vote to disqualify Donald Trump from ever holding public office again, undoubtedly, or very likely at least, President Trump would appeal that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, and very likely we would then get a decision from the court as to whether the Senate had jurisdiction to proceed in the first place. But with 45 senators already saying that we don't think there is jurisdiction and several others that might possibly join them, it certainly doesn't look at this point like it's going to get that far. They don't have anywhere close to the two-thirds vote they would need to convict or to take any action after a conviction. The interesting thing I would point out, though, is that this is being done this effort to try to prohibit him from ever holding office again, it's being done in the interest of democracy. Now, in the interest of democracy, they are trying to tell you and me and 70-some million other people in this country that they can't vote for the person that they choose. In fact, if you read the petition that the brief that the House has written and submitted to the Senate on this, one of the points they make is, and they use lofty language like this, this is too important to be left to the election process. Oh, my word. What they mean by this is we can't trust the voters because the voters might be stupid enough to vote for Donald Trump again, and we can't tolerate that. But anyway, so this is the height of arrogance. It is the height of hypocrisy, not only in that they're doing it in the name of democracy, but being undemocratic, but... Also, they are talking about actions for which there is no indication that Trump had any part. In fact, Alexandria Cortez, or whatever her full name is, she has now said that this whole thing was planned out by these militia groups way in advance. Well, in that case, then how can you possibly say that President Trump instigated all this by his speech on the morning of December of January 6th? But anyway, Beyond that, the other hypocrisy we see here is that we have gone through a whole summer of shootings, murders, of 
pillaging, burning, looting, all being done on the streets of liberal controlled cities across this country. And not a word of protest about this from our liberal Democrats in Washington, but now they are utterly outraged about what had gone on in the Capitol on January 6th. Now, certainly they should be. But I would simply point out that those of us who have supported Donald Trump condemned the activities of January 6th from the very beginning and have been consistent on that. The other side has been hypocritical. Anyway, so that's where we are, and we're just going to have to see what the Senate decides to do next week. But... I don't think it's going to go very far. They might have several days of debate, possibly call some witnesses. But even if they get a majority, they're not going to get anywhere close to two-thirds. And of that, I am virtually, virtually certain. i got to be honest, well, Colonel. after I'm... we take our break, we're going to be continuing with our discussion of the Constitution. Brian, did you want to add something? I just want to tell you, I'm torn as to whether or not the Senate is wasting time and American taxpayer resources in pursuing, you know, this, uh, this impeachment. Um, and, and, you know, the same goes for the house. Is this a, on the one hand, I think this is so wasteful. On the other hand, it's keeping them busy. It's keeping them occupied. They're not digging deeper into my pocketbook. So can, can you kind of see there's, there's almost, a, there's a balance that, that I have to weigh there of um, which hurts the least. Anything that occupies the legislature's time and, prevents them from getting to passing laws and imposing taxes. I guess you could argue there's some good in all of that, and I see your point. And somebody, and I cannot remember whether this was Mark Twain or whether it was Will Rogers, made the statement that no man's life, liberty, or property <laughs> are secure so long as the legislature is in session. And there's truth to that. And the that. legislature is <laughs> the guardians of our life, liberty, and property. They're supposed to be our representatives, but... I'm afraid many times we see ourselves as having an ad adversary relationship with the legislature, and that certainly has been the case since the legislature gained the power to an income tax in the 16th Amendment of 1913. Well, like Will Rogers pointed out, the difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time the legislature convenes. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or more importantly, if you sign up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare, and MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have more than 400,000 members now around the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2 billion of each other's medical bills, so they could help share your needs too. And best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is around 500 bucks a month. Your savings could be more or less, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. 
mounds and mounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Dixie and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we have been making our way through the Constitution over the weeks, uh, we are approaching and actually we're hitting a new milepost today. We are ready to delve into Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. We've been looking at Article 1 for quite some time whenever we haven't been focusing on election issues and impeachment issues. but We've gone through Article 8. Now, Article, I'm sorry, Article 1, Section 8. Now, Section 8 is one of the most important sections of the Constitution because it is in this section that we, the people, through the Constitution, have delegated powers to Congress and told Congress the things that they have the authority to do, the basic principle being that unless these things are authorized by Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, or another provision of the Constitution, or are necessary and proper to carry out one of those powers, Congress doesn't have that power. We've seen again that ours is a government of limited and delegated powers, meaning it isn't a matter that the government can do whatever it wants to do unless the Constitution prohibits it. It's the other way around. There has to be authorization in the Constitution for something, or Congress simply does not have that power. But now we get to Section 9. And Section 9 talks about some powers that are specifically limited, not always prohibited, but limited. In other words, some of these, they say you can't do this at all. Some of them say you can't do this unless. And so we're going to look to some of the limitations that Article 9 places 
on the power of Congress, and really on the power of the federal government as a whole. We'll see how far we go here. If we go on to Section 10, Section 10 is limitations upon the states, things that the states can't do. But first of all, in Section 9, the first paragraph reads that the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. But it goes on to say that they can impose a tax on this. Now, what we're talking about here is the slave trade. And this was an issue that was very divisive at the Constitutional Convention and had been becoming increasingly divisive in America before that time, and of course afterward as well. And originally, we'd have to say that slavery existed in all of the colonies, the northern colonies as well as the southern colonies, just that the northern economies just were not as compatible with slavery as with the southern plantation economy. But the northern states, in fact, particularly the states of Massachusetts and Connecticut and Rhode Island, carried on much of the slave trade. They would send their ships over to, the, to Arabia or to North Africa, and there they would purchase slaves or trade rum and other things for slaves, and sometimes purchasing from tribal chiefs, sometimes from the Arabs. And then they bring them first to the West Indies, and there in the West Indies, they would sell them to plantation owners. And then what was left from that, they would take and sell to the Southern states. And anyway, so this was going on at the time our constitution was written. And we had a lot of different viewpoints on this. Quite a few from the Northern states especially were members of abolition societies and believed that slavery should be abolished. Some of those from Virginia were personally opposed to slavery, but didn't really think it could be abolished right away. George Washington directed that his slaves be freed on his death. Jefferson had repeatedly expressed opposition to slavery, but still owned slaves, and but did work to have slavery limited. James Madison also strongly opposed slavery and once said that the entire Bible is against slavery, but basically said that because of the economy at the time, we can't just take the slaves and just set them free right now. They'd have no way of supporting themselves. Patrick Henry strongly opposed slavery, even though he himself still held slaves and said that, how can it be that I, a professing Christian, am a slave owner? And then he explained the circumstance. If I sell them, he's saying that they'll have no, no way to provide, then that's just given to somebody else. If I free them, they'll have no way of supporting themselves. So he said, I can only resolve to treat my slaves as kindly as possible and to work and pray that the day will soon come when this abominable institution will be abolished from the face of the earth. And then some of those in the deep South states still believed that slavery was essential to their economies and wanted slavery to continue and had said that we will never sign the Constitution and our states will never ratify the Constitution if it contains a provision abolishing slavery. And, of course, this is tied in, too, with another issue, and that was the question, do we count slaves for purposes of taxation? 
and for purposes of representation in Congress. You know, we've decided we're going to have a two-house Congress, and the second house is, the lower house is going to be based on population. So as we compute the population of the state, do we count the slaves? Now, there's a little hypocrisy on both sides here. The South says, of course we count them. It gives them more representation. The North says, no, we don't count slaves. And then, for purposes of some types of taxes that were based on population, do we count slaves for taxation? The South says, no, of course we don't. The North says, oh, yes, we do. So you see some hypocrisy on both sides here. And then also, there was some mixed feelings even in the deep South states on the issue. Some of them were opposed, they didn't want to abolish slavery, but they were opposed to, or they were for abolishing the slave trade. They said that the slave trade has the effect of depressing the prices of our slaves. You know, you increase the supply of slaves, that means that the per capita price of a slave goes down, and if you have slaves in your plantation and your slaves are mortgaged, that may, may mean that their actual monetary value is less than the mortgage on it, so you could be in a very bad position on this. So some of the southern states wanted the slave trade to be stopped. Others didn't. Some of the, in the north even, wanted the slave trade to continue because they were profiting from it. So you had a lot of hypocrisy on both sides. Now the compromise was, first of all, as far as taxation and representation, was that a slave would count as three-fifths of a person. Now, people say, so they're saying, they're saying black people are only 60% human. No, that wasn't the point at all. It was simply a raw compromise without which the Constitution would never have been ratified. Probably the, the convention would never even have continued. But then, as far as the slave trade, you know, abolishing slavery is one thing. Ending the slave trade, that is, importing slaves from out of the country, that's another matter entirely. And there was a belief among many that the slave trade, if we just left it alone, that it would die out on its own because the plantations simply weren't profitable anymore. Now, the cotton gin, of course, changes all of that, and it makes slavery profitable again. So some of the South was saying, look, give us 20 years, and it'll be abolished on its own. And so that's why we have this provision that Congress cannot abolish the slave trade until 1808, which was 20 years after what they thought would be the ratification year of the Constitution. Again, a raw compromise. It doesn't say slavery won't continue beyond that, just that the slave trade, bringing, importing slaves, can't continue beyond that. After 1808, they can abolish the slave trade entirely. Okay, this is a good place for us to hit pause, and we will continue as we uh, explore Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution here on Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We will uh, take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a few moments. Again, we remind you that you can uh, check out the archives at lovingliberty.net. If you want to go back to the very beginning, the Colonel will gently walk you through uh, the history, the reasoning, the traditions, the laws, all of those things that went into the drafting of the Constitution.
are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, let's pick up right where we left off. Again, we are looking at Article 1 of the Constitution, Section 9. This is the section that imposes some limitations on what Congress can do. There's some things that they thought they had to specifically prohibit, and others that they thought they had to not just prohibit, but maybe put some limits on what Congress could do. Now, one of these is what we call the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. And it says that this privilege of habeas corpus will not be suspended except when it's required because of cases of rebellion or invasion or public safety. Now, what is a writ of habeas corpus? It's kind of an all-purpose writ that is a petition to a court that you use when there's nothing else available, when your avenues of appeal have failed, when all the grounds of appeal have either failed or expired, you still have what we call the writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus literally means, let me have my body. What it means is, you are holding me in jail. And court, judge, I want you to issue an order telling the sheriff's office or whoever it is that is holding me in jail, to either show a good cause for holding me or let me go. This is the general rep that you could use when all else fails to get relief. And it's one that was regarded as sacred in English and American common law. And the framers obviously believe that it's something that should definitely be protected. And so they said it can't be suspended unless it has to be suspended because of emergency. For example, if there is a rebellion going on, if there is an invasion from a foreign country, the public safety in those circumstances might require that we abolish the writ of habeas corpus. President Lincoln abolished the writ of habeas corpus in, during the war between the states and claimed that this was necessary because we had a rebellion going on. and whether the secession of the southern states was a rebellion is something that could definitely be debated, but at any rate, that was the position that the president took at that time. And he faced considerable opposition, even in the North, concerning this writ of this abolition of the writ of habeas corpus. And only after he got Congress to support him on this could he succeed in doing so. Only a couple times since then has the writ of habeas corpus been suspended. This is generally been something that those in the federal government have felt, we just don't want to mess with this. This is too sacred a right. And so only a few times have we felt that there was a sufficient emergency that required that this be done. Now we go on to say that there could be no bill of attainder or an ex post facto law. And so let's talk about what each of these is. A bill of attainder best way to describe a bill of attainder is that it is a statute that effectively imposes a punishment even though there has been no conviction for a crime. Let's say if the Congress were to pass a law saying that all those who entered the Capitol on January 6th 
hereby lose their citizenship and forfeit all their property. That would be a bill of attainder because that is being done by the legislative branch when a punishment for a criminal offense is something that needs to be done by the judicial branch. They could prescribe that this would be a penalty that would be imposed for people who have committed a criminal violation, but only after they have been convicted of that violation. But even there, there'd be a limit on what they could do because also they are prohibited from issuing what we call an ex post facto law. So what is an ex post facto law? Ex post facto means after the fact. In other words, making something a criminal offense that was perfectly legal when you did it. Let's say that, well, Brian, you went out to get a glass of water just a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Let's say if tomorrow Congress passes a law saying that it is a criminal offense for anyone broadcasting on the radio <laughs> to drink water. And so you get charged. Not only is it a ridiculous charge, but it's also ex post facto. They couldn't convict you of that because drinking water while you're doing a radio broadcast was legal at the time you did it. They can't take something that is perfectly legal and make it illegal and then charge you for having done it back when it was legal. Let's say, if, now another would be to make the offense more, to define the terms of the offense more severely. Let's say, for example, as we say in Alabama, that on the interstates here, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. So let's say that I'm going at even 70 miles an hour. And then next, let's say next month, the Congress passes a law saying from now on, the speed limit on the interstate is 60 miles an hour. And so they try to charge me for having gone 70 miles an hour way back on February 3rd, when it was still legal to go 70 miles an hour. No, again, that would be an ex post facto law. A couple of other things that make an ex post facto law is not just a matter of making something illegal that was legal when it was done, but also if they increase the punishment for it. Let's say right now, let's say you're driving on the, let's say we have a 70 mile hour speed limit on Interstate 85 here in Montgomery, Alabama, 70 mile an hour speed limit. And let's say the punishment for exceeding the speed limit is $100. Okay, so let's say that I am pulled over for going 80 miles an hour and I'm given a ticket. But before I go to court, Congress raises the speed limit on the interstate, or doesn't raise the speed limit, Congress raises the fine from $100 to $1,000. And I go into court, here's my $100, I plead guilty, sorry, the law's been changed, it's now $1,000. No, they can't do that. They, they can increase the punishment, but they can't apply it retroactively. I have to be punished by what the punishment was when I committed the offense. Now, on the other hand, let's say they do the opposite. Let's say they change the speed limit to, or, or let's say they change the punishment instead of $100, let's say they make it $50. Can they still fine me $100 if the punishment was $100 when I did it? 
The answer is yes, legally they can, constitutionally they can, but usually they won't. In other words, if the laws change to benefit the defendant, usually the defendant will be given the benefit of that change in the law. Another thing they can't do is they can't increase the class of the offense. Let's say if it's a certain type of murder is second degree murder, but we change the law between the time when, let's say I am charged with committing murder to when I go to trial and they change it to make that first degree murder and a much more severe punishment. No, they can't change the punishment. They can change the punishment, but they have to use for me the punishment that existed when I committed the offense. Or let's give one more category. Let's say they change the law in a way that makes it easier to get a conviction. Let's say we have a law that says no one can be convicted of murder except by the testimony of three witnesses. But I am charged with committing murder, and that's the law at the time I'm charged. But before I go to trial, the law has changed, and the law now says you can be convicted with only two witnesses. Again, they can change the law, but they still have to apply the three-witness rule to me because that was what was in effect when I allegedly committed the crime. Anyway, so that's what an ex post facto law is. The federal government is prohibited from producing ex post facto laws here in Section 9. And then, as we'll see in Section 10, the states are also prohibited from employing ex post facto laws. So the idea that changing the law to, to the detriment of a defendant between the time the offense is committed and the time he goes to trial, that is something that is simply we will not do and anyway so those are the prohibitions of nine and ten okay we will take a very quick break here again you are listening to constitution classroom on the loving liberty radio network uh, colonel john eidsmo is your host you can find a lot of great information there at the website lovingliberty.net you can also we'll have a link in the show notes that will take you to the foundation for moral law stay with us we'll be back just the other side of these commercial messages cat mama. She's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zootie and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 
totally normal to be constipated with belly pain, straining, and bloating again and again. No way. You could have a chronic condition called irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC. Linzess, or linaclotide, is a prescription that treats IBSC in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives to help relieve belly pain and let you have more frequent and complete bowel movements. Individual results may vary. Do not give to children less than 6, and it should not be given to children 6 to less than 18. It may harm them. Do not take Linzess if you have a bowel blockage. Get immediate help if you develop unusual or severe stomach pain, especially with bloody or black stools. The most common side effect is diarrhea, sometimes severe. If it's severe, stop taking Linzess and call your doctor right away. Other side effects include gas, stomach area pain, and swelling. Talk to your doctor today. You may be able to save on Linzess and make fewer trips to the pharmacy. See if you're eligible to pay as little as $30 for 90 days. Visit Linzess.com or call 1-800-L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. Sponsored by Abbey and Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. I'm Dr. Baker, an ER physician. If you're having leg pain, swelling, or redness, but haven't talked to your doctor yet, don't wait. This could be deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot which could travel to your lungs and lead to a pulmonary embolism, which could cause chest pain or discomfort or difficulty breathing and be deadly. Your symptoms could mean something serious, so don't wait. Talk to a doctor right away by phone, online, or in person. Brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only nineteen ninety-five to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. Once again, thank you for joining us for Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is your host. And Colonel, I think we're going to do it. We're going to actually make it through the rest of of Section 9 in this final segment of today's show. I believe we will, too. We've already talked about the slave trade being prohibited or cannot be prohibited until 1808. And after that, it was prohibited. That didn't abolish slavery, but it abolished the international importation of slaves. We have seen the writ of habeas corpus, how it cannot be abolished except when the rebellion or invasion make it necessary for the public safety. We've seen that there can be no bill of attainder, bill of attainder being a bill that, by which the legislature imposes a penalty for something that was done, and we can't have an ex post facto law that is something that makes it possible to punish me for something that was legal when I did it. In other words, making a new criminal law and trying to apply it retroactively. Well, let's go on to the rest of Article 9, or Section 9 of Article 1. And first of all, we're told that there can be no capitation or other direct tax unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. And we already have seen this enumeration that is to be taken, this enumeration that is to number the number of people primarily so we can know what kind of taxes to impose and how many representatives the state of North Carolina, for example, is entitled to. We have this enumeration, but interestingly, it is referred to as an enumeration. And the idea of a census in the sense that the census is taken every 10 years now 
and how they'll ask you questions of how many bathrooms do you have in your house and what is your race? What is your, all these other questions? What is your annual income? How many people do you have living in your house and things like that? Those are things that I would argue that are not authorized by the constitutional provision authorizing an enumeration. They're authorized to ask how many people live in your house. I don't think they're really authorized to ask anything more. Interestingly enough, that I've always considered myself to be Norwegian on my father's side and German on my mother's side, but when we had a DNA check done on my brother with the, I believe it was Ancestry.com that he went through to have this done, we found that while that's largely correct, there's also a little bit of Celtic blood within us too, which could be the interchange between Scandinavia and the British Isles, but also it's said a little less than 1% Melanesian. And if you study the Melanesians, well, the Melanesians, of course, from the East Indies, Polynesian area there, they're a fascinating people. But if you look to their DNA, it says that there is a substantial amount of Neanderthal DNA with the Melanesians. And so several times when at a doctor's office, for example, when I've been asked to state race, I've just said Neanderthal. And anyway, what I really meant by that is it's none of your business. Mm. I'm who I am. My race is not the issue. But anyway, going back to the provision here about no capitation or other direct tax, the part about it being proportionate to the census or enumeration, that has largely been nullified by the 16th Amendment. 16th Amendment authorizes a income tax, which was not authorized before. We had had a couple attempts to pass a national income tax before, and they were struck down by the Supreme Court. And so the 16th Amendment came along, which we've talked about before, and anyway, so that effectively nullifies most of this provision about the capitation or other direct tax. It goes on to say that no tax or duty shall be laid on the articles exported from any state. Meaning of this is that we tie this in with the Interstate Commerce Clause, that we saw that the Interstate Commerce Clause gave Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce, but also in what we refer to as the Dormant Commerce Clause, it also impliedly limits the states in their power to regulate interstate commerce. The framers saw a situation where states were taxing each other. In other words, if, let's say you're a businessman in Connecticut and you want to sell goods to Rhode Island. Rhode Island might impose a tax upon you, just like a tariff, just like you were bringing them in from Canada or England or from another country and states were treating each other as foreign countries for tax purposes. And so the provision of Article 1, Section 9 goes on to say that no state is going to be able to import taxes or, do, or impose, impose tariffs or quotas on goods imported back and forth, nor can Congress impose taxes or tariffs on goods going from one state to another. The idea is we want free commerce. And 
The purpose of the Interstate Commerce Clause, like this clause, is not to regulate commerce, it's to free commerce. But then we go on to say that no preference shall be given to any, any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. The basic provision here is, again, just like we're not going to be charging tariffs for goods that are being transported from one state to another, so we're not going to be putting tonnage and levies and other sorts of things on ships that might go from the harbors of, let's say, South Carolina to the harbors of Virginia or Rhode, Rhode Island and the like. Again, the idea we want commerce to run free and foreign commerce is a different matter. We can put tariffs and levies and so forth on that, but not on ships going from the ports of one state to another. No money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. This hasn't been the subject of a lot of litigation, but the principle is clear. The guardian of the purse is Congress. The court can't simply appropriate money on its own, and the president and his officers cannot simply appropriate money on their own. If they want to spend money on a certain project, they have to go to Congress and get Congress to make the appropriation. But in consequence of appropriation made by law, and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. Once again, transparency in government, that all monies that are spent by Congress, this should not only be known to Congress, we should be telling Congress about how agencies are spending their money, but Congress needs to make this available to the public. And then we go on to say, no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office or profit or trust under them shall, without consent of Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind from any king, prince, or foreign state. First of all, the United States is not going to be issuing any titles of nobility. We're not going to be making people knights or barons or lords or earls or dukes or other titles like this. If you are given such a title by a foreign country, there should be no problem with your having that title from a foreign country, but the United States is not gonna issue any, and I think this clause would go on to say that the United States not only will not issue any such titles of nobility, but cannot in any way officially recognize that you have that title. Again, the idea of equal protection of the law, the idea that all men are created equal, means that we are gonna be recognizing any titles of nobility. But then also we have another provision here that is designed to ensure that our public officials are going to be loyal to the United States and the United States only. No person holding any office or profit or trust under the United States shall, without consent of Congress, accept any present, that is a gift, any emolument, that is a salary or an honorarium, something that's an emolument is in return for something you've done, an office or a title of any kind from any king or prince or foreign state. The idea is we don't want anything that would cause any public official of the United States to compromise his loyalty to the United States by being on the take from a foreign government 
or being given special titles by a foreign government. In America, we're going to be loyal to the United States and to the United States alone. Okay. This is a perfect place for us to go ahead and and stop. Thank you so much, Colonel. As always, great to visit with you. I look forward to next week, and I think we'll probably have a lot more to catch up on as far as uh, current events go as well. By that time, the trial will have started, and so we should know a lot. Maybe it'll be coming